back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And you can hear us every Sunday or most Sundays on the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast feed. You can catch that through iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and Astrally Projected Mind Tapes. Uh, I really want to apologize that there was no episode for a couple of weeks. You know, this is uh, largely my fault. Just do not budget my time correctly. I went out of town last weekend, and uh, this caused problems. But hopefully you'll uh, join right back in for part two of the history of underground comics, where we finally get to the salacious, you know, uh, psychedelic part that everyone really thinks of when they think of underground comics. I think we're actually going to talk about comics today. This time, exactly. We're not just going to talk about, you know, Mad Magazine and Harvey Kurtzman. We're going to talk about uh, actual comics that were produced. But first, we are going to do a little recap. Uh, you know, the first underground comics, in a sense, were independently produced and distributed pornographic comics that were known as Tijuana Bibles. These were published from the late 1920s to the late 1950s, and they got distributed under the counter or in pool halls and bars and things like that. Uh, Mad Magazine debuted in 1952, and this created a shift in comedy and comic book sensibilities. And its founding editor, Harvey Kurtzman, left EC Comics in 1956 to do a magazine called Trump for Hugh Hefner. And then he self-published Humbug, and then did Help for Warren Publications in the 1960s. And these will become, these will be mentioned again in this episode, that's why they're important here. Uh, at the same time, the world of fanzines became prolific for science fiction, and then, you know, in the later 50s, it was comics. Uh, many of them inspired by Mad Magazine and other work of Kurtzman. Wally Wood's Wits End was a self-produced anthology comic, began in 1966. And then right now, the baby boomers are about to enter puberty. Yes, and we have a very special message for them. Keep on trucking. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, we're going to start by talking uh, about uh, Robert Crumb. He's probably... Uh, He's definitely one of the more uh, famous underground uh, creators. For sure, yeah. Ever, yeah. Uh, there is a uh, documentary called Crumb. It was directed by uh, Terry Zwigoff. It was in 1994-1995-ish. Uh, um, you can get more insight on uh, Robert Crumb, his family, his upbringing. Uh, I, I have never seen it. I, I always confused this one with American Splendor. Yeah. And uh, the, Which I did see. <laughs> this, this is a straight documentary, you know, without any... Uh, yeah, know, this isn't actors. a dramatic retelling. Yeah, I will is... say, though, it's highly disturbing, and it it will give you, if you do appreciate Robert Crumb's artwork, this won't help you with that. It might not hurt, but it won't help, so you, you might not want to know certain things about Crumb's <laughs> upbringing. I saw that it's it's currently, it's on uh, one of the streaming uh, uh, services now. It might even be YouTube, but uh, I did uh, read the Robert Ebert, Roger Ebert, uh, uh, review of it, and it sounds uh, it sounds pretty wild. Yeah, uh, probably gonna have to check it out one of these days when I have uh, two and a half hours to kill. Two and a half um, hours, and your wife's out of the house. I think that's probably the best way to do it. And, and the, dro the the shades are drawn. The shades are drawn, um, and you, you know you unplug the telephone, <laughs> that kind of thing. Now, uh, Robert Dennis Crumb. He was born August thirtieth, nineteen forty-three, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His father's name was Charles V. Crumb. He was a combat illustrator for in the Marines for uh, twenty years. And uh, a combat illustrator is uh, basically exactly what it sounds like. He uh, would draw pictures of weapons, vehicles, maneuvers. Uh, if the Marines needed a picture, he drew it. Mm -hmm. uh, he also wrote the training manual. Uh, it's a training people, dot, 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 effectively. Uh, came out through uh, LaFax Publications in 1970. Uh, his mother's name was Beatrice. She was a housewife uh, that reportedly abused diet pills. 
probably uh, not out of the ordinary for the era. Sure. Uh, he had, oh, did he see here, Charles and Beatrice had an unhappy marriage, and they fought a lot in front of their five children. Uh, there was a Carol, who was born in 1940, Charles Jr., born in 42, there's Robert, of course, born in 43, Maxon was born in 44, and Sandra was born in 1946, so uh, Beatrice had some very busy loins. Yeah, right uh, there. In the all, first half of the 40s. All there in the 40s, all these wartime kids just cranking out, and uh, I mean, I guess there were brief respite in the uh, unhappy marriage if this was going on, but I don't know. Sure. <laughs> Now, they, they would move around a lot due to their, the father's uh, military career, but in 1955, they moved to uh, Milford, Delaware, and that's where they uh, kind of settled. Yeah. Uh, Charles Crumb Sr., he retired in 1956. All of the Crumb children attended Catholic school, and I did that, too, for a little while. Hey. <laughs> uh, Robbie Crumb was an average student, and his teachers uh, discouraged his cartooning. Hey, that happened to me in school, too. <laughs> <laughs> How come you're uh, not Robert Crumb? What happened? I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't get yelled at that much. Uh, I guess. <laughs> now, Robert's dad was a stern, serious man, uh, verbally and physically abusive. Uh, Charles Senior broke Robert's collarbone when he was five years old. Wow. Uh, and uh, he made no bones about the fact that he considered his sons to be, uh, quote unquote, sissies. Yeah. I mean, if you definitely, if you ever see Robert Crumb, he is like almost a prototypical gawkish nerd with like coke yeah. bottle glasses and really, really gaunt and thin. His his brothers are, you know. A little more fleshed out, but uh, well, one of them, I believe, both of them have passed by now. But they, you know, they look like a couple Very of nervous, nerds. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, inspired by Walt Kelly, Fleischer Studios cartoons that would be Betty Boop and Popeye and Superman, uh, the original first Popeyes and Superman cartoons. Little Lulu, Mad Magazine, and Walt Disney. The three Crumb brothers would produce comics at home under the direction of Charles Jr. Uh, that was more Robert and Charles than Maxon, but. There was a competition going on, and they would draw Maxon into these as well. Uh, Robert Crumb said the cover of the second issue of uh, Harvey Kurtzman, Humbug, came uh, that was September 1957, changed his life. The Crumb brothers self-published a humor magazine called Foo in 1958 and sold it door-to-door -door with little success. And this actually soured Robert on comic books for a while, even though, I, you know, it really sounds like... Uh, you know, some little kid lemonade stand type thing, but I guess he, I guess he thought this was his ticket to uh, Harvey Kurtzman. Yeah, superstardom. <laughs> uh, but he still drew comics at home with his taskmaster brother Charles, who pushed him to improve and keep producing comics. He really was kind of a slave driver in that respect, for all, from uh, all accounts. Yeah, that's what. Uh, that's even what the uh, Ebert review sounds like. That it was a uh, kind of crack in the whip. Mm -hmm. um, now, by age 15, Robert became interested in jazz records from the 20s to the 40s, and it would become a lifelong obsession. Uh, last we heard, that he'd had one of the most complete collection of records from this era in the world. I, I gotta wonder if uh, the, uh, the 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 Buscemi character in Ghost World might be uh, a little bit uh, possibly. They definitely uh, share on him. They share a visual similarity, so yeah, I, I bet they also there do. Is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, the following year, in 1959, he abandoned his family's Catholic faith. Not that the crumbs owned it or anything, but you, know, <laughs> you get it. Uh, when Robert graduated high school, his dad gave him 40 bucks and <laughs> not so subtly to to hit the skids, hit, yeah. hit the bricks, kid. Don't let the door hit you. Yep. Um, he found work at the American Greeting Card Company in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1962. Uh, first, he was a color separator, and then he became an illustrator. Uh, this is all despite the fact that his boss often uh, considered his drawings grotesque and wasn't shy about telling him that. Mm. 
Um, his boss, uh, Tom Wilson, was uh, he's the future creator of that uh, single panel comic strip that kind of sucks, uh, Ziggy. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of uh, sort of uplifting for people that need it, you know, in the lowest points of their lives, they go, they turn to Ziggy. I think. Yeah, so tomorrow uh, he's going to be at the uh, complaint counter saying that uh, Weird Comics History said he sucked. That's right. <laughs> I want to return this podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, he uh, would work there for four years producing cards for their uh, highbrow line. Uh, he made his artwork uh, cuter at his boss's direction, and this would have a lasting impact on his work. Uh, he would get married to a lady named Dana Morgan in 1964. Now, at that point, Robert had already been sending comics to various magazines with no luck until 1964 when he got a response from his idol, Harvey Kurtzman. He published one of Herb Crumb's comics, which was an early Fritz the Cat cartoon, much more about Fritz the Cat later on, in Help. That was the magazine that Harvey Kurtzman was doing for Warren Publications and turned out to be his most sex successful venture um, in his uh, independent life. Uh, Harvey invited uh, Robert to New York City to become an assistant to Kurtzman. Uh, of the cartoon, Kurtzman said, We really like the cat cartoon, but we're not sure how we can print it and stay out of jail. <laughs> but they apparently figured it out because they did print it. A crumb was ecstatic and headed straight for New York, worked as a gopher, and submitted a few other cartoons. Later in 1964, Robert and Dana went to Europe, completely broke. I'm not even sure how they got there. Uh, crumb submitted some cartoons for help, but made nothing approaching a livable wage. Dana stole food so they could survive. Uh, they returned to New York in early 1965, and not long after that, Help magazine folded. Crumb did some work for Topps Trading Cards, and we're going to hear a lot more about that going forward, before he and Dana moved back to Cleveland and Robert got his old job back at the Greeting Card Company. Uh, Robert fell in with some of the local bohemians. You know, he's sort of drifting around life now. You can see he's looking for something. And uh, I, there were a few people, but chief among them is a fellow named Harvey Picar. Uh, they would later collaborate on Picar's comic American Splendor, uh, which we'll probably talk about a little bit in the next episode. Uh, they became friendly over a mutual affection for early jazz records, and Harvey Picar has passed on uh, not too long ago. So uh, I, yeah, pretty recently. Yeah, like six six years ago, something like yeah. that. Uh, but he apparently left behind a tremendous collection of 78s also that flooded the market. Now, in 1965, Robert tried LSD for the first time. It was legal at that time, by the way. I think it went illegal the following year. But by his own account, this changed his perception of everything and had a profound impact on his art. He sold a few Fritz the Cat comics this year and the next to a Cavalier magazine, which is a real low-budget Playboy ripoff. Uh, during this time, he'd also develop a lot of characters that we would see later on in his uh, underground comics work. Mr. Natural... Uh, Angel Food, McSpade. These were all developed during this LSD haze of a time right here. So Robert and Dana would continue to use LSD, including one bad trip of Robert's that lasted half a year and caused them to split up. They would, re they would reunite after taking LSD together uh, again. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonder drug, this uh, LSD. But splits you apart, brings you back together. Uh, during this time, Crumb would invent several characters, like I said, and they would be featured later on. Uh, in January 1967, Crumb met a couple of acquaintances at a Cleveland bar who were heading to San Francisco. Now, he was interested in the rock concert posters of Wes Wilson, Victor Moscoso, and Rick Griffin. These are the ones with the really psychedelic, elongated letters. Mm. Pretty much when you think of 60s rock, you think of this kind of lettering or like... 
the logo to the band Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, like that, like the elongated, bubbled letter. Sort of. Yeah. It's a, it's it's really almost like what graffiti would look like later on. But they'll even be more about that later. <laughs> uh, and he was bolstered by the good reception to comics he'd submitted to the underground newspaper East Village Other. So Robert decided to go along with them, uh, the people going to San Francisco. Without telling his wife or his job. So that was the kind of fella he was. San Francisco was, at the time, the countercultural center of the United States. Um, you know, it, there's so much has been written about it, but this is the hippie era, folks. This is where it's all going down. So if you want to be anywhere, you want to be in San Francisco. And I don't want you to worry. His wife, Dana, did follow him to San Francisco shortly after. So it didn't end their marriage yet. Yes, not yet. Not yet. Uh, now, uh, you did mention uh, underground newspapers there, so let's uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Um, now, it's worthwhile to note that in America, you know, we have freedom of the press and free speech is protected. Uh, underground here means something very different than it does in the rest of the world. This is not like revolutionary writings and stuff. Yeah, necessarily, um, yeah. Yes, and uh, in other countries, underground means more or less illegal. Uh, where in America it just means not mainstream. Uh, in publication terms, it has much more to do with the distribution, as a, or as much to do with the distribution and the content uh, as the content. Uh, the Village Voice launched uh, October 1955 by Ed Fancher, Dan Wolf, John Wilcock, and Norman Mailer, and The Realist uh, begun in the spring of uh, 1958 by Paul Krasner. That was published out of the offices of Mad Magazine and uh, ended not too long ago, uh, right. in 2001. Um, they were the first kind of uh, regular newspapers of this type. Uh, the first of the hippie era was the Los Angeles Free Press, or the Freep. It's a, a weekly newspaper that began in 1964 by Art Uh they bought their own uh, newspaper vendors, uh, those uh, boxes full of newspapers, you know, the ones that used to be on the street corners where you put, you know, you put your money in there and you, you only take one. Yeah, you don't uh, see them. <laughs> you see those in Canada. They don't have them in America anymore. I guess the newspaper is dead. It's getting there. It's getting there. <laughs> uh, and they, these were uh, distributed throughout uh, L.A. Uh, it's worth noting that the Free Press uh, published the political cartoons of Rob Cobb, uh, perhaps the first underground comics with an X. Um, now, the founders of the Underground Press Syndicate, they uh, shared creative and distribution resources with 600 underground student newspapers uh, across the United States, including... The East Village Other, and this is a paper that was going to keep coming up during this period because they were very receptive to comics and the cartoonists of the time. Uh, that paper was co-founded in October 1965 by Walter Bowart, Ishmael Reed, who named the newspaper, Alan Katzman, Dad Ratner, Sherry Needham, and John Wilcock. It was a tabloid form newspaper, first as a Dadaist, absurd paper, kind of surreal, making no sense, but it became more politically and comic strip inclined over time. Uh, it began as a monthly, then a bi-weekly, then a weekly, and it was 25 cents a copy until it went weekly, and then it was 15 cents, which seems pretty reasonable. Although I bet that newspapers at the time were a nickel. So that's Probably. something to think about, uh, meaning like daily news and whatever. At its peak, it boasted a circulation of 60,000 copies, all through head shops and counterculture cafes. So none of these things could be purchased on the newsstand. You had to know where to go to get this sort of item. Uh, although I'm also betting the East Village other had no returns policy. So all, <laughs> all 60,000 copies were purchased or at some wholesale rate. Now, uh, East Village Other did have a comic section right from their beginning. Uh, many, many artists would publish work and get their start. 
Kim Deitch, Skip Williamson, and Bill Beckman, just to name a few. I mean, it goes, and we're going to be talking about more of them later on. And Robert Crumb was a favorite of the East Village Other in 1966 until it ceased publishing in 1972. We'll be talking much more about that later, and there'll be much more comics-focused stuff later on. Uh, but the point of this is there were hundreds of underground newspapers at the peak of the sea, and this also includes uh, university and college newspapers. Uh, many of these were included in the underground press syndicate, and many was were operating outside of it. So if there are 600 included, you know, let's say there's another 300 more that are not you know, part of this underground press syndicate. Uh, many of them feature the comics work of some underground comics luminaries. Uh, that could be a podcast unto itself, but this is about the achievements in... You know, that story would be more about investigative journalism and how they pushed the envelope as far as newspapers went. And this podcast really is about those saddle-stapled, you know, color-covered things we call comic books. So we're, you know, mm -hmm. I just, they have to be mentioned because they are vital to this story, Absolutely. Uh, these underground papers. But that really is, it's, it's a massive amount of information. And if you're interested, there are resources. I'll, I'm definitely going to link some in the show notes, but we're, we just can't spend a ton of time on it. Sure, sure. Now uh, back to uh, Robert. Uh, he was a uh, he was a star of the underground newspaper scene. However, in uh, 1968, he was um, he was approached by uh, a fellow by the name of Don Donahue to produce a comic book. That's a good name, by the way. Come on, isn't it great? Yeah. We, we got a we got a we got a lot of good names coming up. <laughs> uh, now uh, Donahue traded his hi-fi cassette player to uh, poet Charles Plymel to publish the first issue of Zap Comics on his printing press. And here is where the X in comics comes from. It's yeah. Zap Comics, C-O-M-I-X. Yeah. Now, the first issue came out in February 1968, completely drawn by Robert Crumb. The first printing was 3,500 copies. The publisher was listed as Apex Novelties, which Don Donahue would continue for years. Uh, S.K. Uh, I'm sorry, S. Clay Wilson, who we'll be talking about much more later, knew Charles Plymel and uh, connected with Crumb. Uh, they would contribute. He would contribute from issue two of Zap onwards. Uh, now, dissatisfied with Don Donahue's relaxed take on publishing, Crumb took Zap to uh, Print Mint Publishers, who produced a zero issue, picking up Gilbert Shelton, more on him in a few, and uh, they would continue until issue nine. Uh, then it was picked up by Last la Last Gasp. <laughs> which has done uh, issue 10 on, technically speaking. Uh, you know, Zap Comics is still technically published, though so sporadically it's not exactly a periodical anymore. Uh, anywho, you know, uh, Zap Comics 1 was a revel revelation to the underground community. It pushed the boundaries of taste, art, and comics language, and would spawn many, many publications. <laughs> and uh, the only way we could do that, the only way we can do them any justice would be to uh, list them. Yeah, and uh, this is going to be a partial list uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, for one thing, we, we're going to talk about some of the publishers first. Some of these publishers, though, or, or some publishers that I didn't list, literally published one issue of a comic they existed to you know create one comic and never you know published anything again i didn't count it if that was the case and the other reason is some of them were just so small there's no information about them you know the, yeah. you know they may have done three comics but no one knows who started it where they printed it you know this isn't exactly stuff that was kept in a uh Hard yeah, this archive. Wasn't a, yeah, there was no archivist for this. A lot of stuff fell through the cracks. For sure. And, you know, we've done the best we can to try to catch all the m biggest ones, but I'm sure that we're missing some, and definitely you should let us know if you are aware of other big publishers at the time. There are people that were there, for example, that probably can t say a lot more. But here's a partial list of some of the big publishers of the uh, San Francisco 
underground comic scene and beyond and the the American underground comic scene it was uh, print mint by that was started by Don and Alice Schenker in 1966 they first printed rock posters for the first couple of years but then they saw that there was something going on in uh, comics and they started on that apex novelties which we just mentioned that was Don Donahue in 1968 uh, the San Francisco comic book company and Gary Arlington uh, started by Gary Arlington in 1968 and this was actually America's first comic book store at 3339 23rd Street in San Francisco's Mission District. Uh, it sold Gary Arlington's back issue collection of Golden Age and EC comics, and later on, right, you know, right around now, would uh, in 1968 would publish Standard Side Comics until 1972, and then they they photocopied mini comics into the 80s, which uh, is a whole other level of underground comics. Yep, a ripoff press that was started by Fred Todd, Dave Moriarty. Gilbert Shelton and Jack Jackson in 1969. Uh, they did a ton of comics, and we'll be talking about some of those later on. But I like these guys because they also printed the first publicly available edition of a book called The Principia Discordia, which is not a comic, but it should be read by anyone who has strange inclinations. It's it's <laughs> it's connected to the uh, trilogy, the Illuminatus trilogy by uh, hmm. uh, what the hell are those guys' name? Uh, I don't know. Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea. Hmm. Anyway, uh, you can still find that out there. I think you probably find the whole thing online now. And Company and Sons, that was started by John Bagley in 1970 and not his son. So that was a total rip, total fake out. Kitchen Sink <laughs> Press, that was started by Dennis Kitchen in 1970. We'll be talking a lot about him later. Mm-hmm. And Last Gasp Comics, that was started by Ron Turner in 1970. Yeah, and uh, some titles, and it's really worth noting that many of these would uh, switch between various underground publishers. Just like that Zap so you talked about, you know, yeah, that, that went through yeah. three or four publishers, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're not going to be able to really pair them because we'd be doing one or two a disservice, very likely. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, also, some of these publishers, produ- like you said, they produced one comic and then nothing else. So it's uh, maybe it was much harder than they had initially uh, initially thought, or maybe they didn't get the returns on it they expected, or Probably. maybe they just uh, decided to uh, drop a few tabs and, and call it a day. <laughs> yeah. <I think>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> now we have the uh, the Chicago Mirror. It was three issues, edited uh, and primarily produced by Jay Lynch in 1967 through 1968. Uh, this was not all comics, though. Uh, there was Yellow Dog Comics that ran 22 issues. From May 68 to fall of uh, 73. Uh, Snatch Comics, three issues primarily produced by Crumb and uh, S. Clay Wilson in 1968-69. Now, these are extremely, as the title may suggest, these are vulgar <laughs> pornographic comics that uh, that made uh, the, their previous work at Zap kind of look like Looney Tunes. Yeah, we're, when we talk about S. Clay Wilson later on, you'll see that he really was a uh, crazy Depraved, side of this yes. whole this, uh, <laughs> underground scene. There was uh, Boogeyman Comics that ran for three issues, 1968 to 1970. Moonchild, Moon seven issues, that was Nicola Cuddy, 1968. Uh, that was the first full-color underground comic, and of course he would later go on to work for Charlton and then go on later on to comics notoriety at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bijou Funnies, that ran for eight issues, summer 1968 to November 1973. Despair Comics, one issue by Robert Crumb. Uh, 1969. Uh, Gotham Blimp ran eight issues, February through September 1969. This was published in the East Valley Other. Like we said, we would be mentioning them again. Yep. Uh, now, this is in full color. 
Mr. Natural, all by R. Crumb, 1970. This character first appeared in a Philadelphia underground newspaper, Yarrow Stalks, in 1969. Uh, It's an issue completely done by Crumb. Uh, There's also Buzzard, all by Wink Boyer, 1970. And The Complete Mr. Infinity, all by Art Spiegelman, in 1970. And we'll be talking about him more later. Oh, yeah, he looms large. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of these guys will come back on you, but not all of them. We do not have the time for everyone. I'm warning you now. Uh, Tales of Toad, all by Bill Griffith. That was three issues, 1970 to 1973. Young Lust Comics, eight issues, 1970 to 1993. Slow Death Comics, 11 issues, 1970 to 1992. Your High Tone Comics, 1971, one issue. Yeah. 11 issues over 22 years That is a slow death, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of what this <laughs> illustrates Is they don't exactly have a rigid publishing schedule Yeah, you know? they don't adhere <laughs> when, you don't, when you don't have a, a taskmaster Holding you to a deadline You sort of let them come out whenever Sure uh, We also have uh, Rubber Duck Tales, two issues, 1971-1972 Funny Animals, 1972 Funny Aminals Funny aminals, holy cow, my dyslexia worked the wrong way this time. Yeah, let's not mix that up with the uh, legitimate (laughs) funny animals comic from the uh, 50s. Yes, let me let me let me do that again. Funny Aminals, nineteen seventy-two. <laughs> uh, homegrown funnies, all by R. Crumb, January nineteen seventy-one. Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, fourteen issues from seventy-one to ninety-seven. Uh, this is written and drawn by Gilbert Shelton. First appeared in the underground newspaper The Rag, and eventually syndicated to uh, other papers in the underground press syndicate. Yeah, that's uh, one of the few that I actually see in the wild. Oh yeah, and they're they're um, they're amazingly high priced. Oh really? I mean, like Original for, ones? Yeah, yeah. For like a single issue, it's you're looking at fifty bucks. Well, Ripoff Press did reprint them in the '80s. I don't know if those are expensive. And then there was a paperback reprinting mm. of everything that actually does have. There are color issues of this uh, that came out in the early '80s that they do reprint in color, but they're they're heavily reduced mm-hmm. um, in size. So, gotcha. uh, but this is one of my. This was a young Reggie's one of my favorite comics that I ever saw. <laughs> as, at, at probably too young an age, so uh, these I have a soft spot for uh, Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Uh, more comics, Mean Bitch Thrills. That was all done by Spain Rodriguez in 1971. Real Pulp Comics, two issues, 1971 and 1973. Paranoia Comics, 1972. That was one issue with a pretty uh, great painted cover. That's pretty well known in the uh, scene. Cheech Wizard, that was all done by Vaughn Baudet. That had four issues, 1972 to 1978. We had uh, Mickey Mouse's ugly brother, Mickey Rat. That <laughs> ran four issues uh, from 72 to 82. Uh, the People's Comics, that's all R. Crumb. So he's a very prolific guy here. Uh, September 1972. There's Women's Comics. Uh, this is W-I-M-M-E-N apostrophe S. That changed to get rid of the men altogether. It's W-I-M-M-I-N apostrophe S. Sure. And this is an all-female-produced anthology. Ran 17 issues between uh, November 1972 to 1992. Uh, it was also Psychotic Adventures Illustrated. So I guess that's kind of like classics. <laughs> classics yeah, illustrated. I love it. Uh, yes, uh, it's three issues all by Charles Dallas, uh, 1972 to 1974. I have, I've never seen too much of the interiors, but supposedly these are some of the more disturbing comics of the uh, era. I don't know. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, they get pretty brutal, but uh, I've, I've never really taken a good look at them. Uh, short Order Comics, two issues, 1973 and 1974. Black and White Comics, these were all by Robert Crumb again, June 1973. Nard and Pat, 
uh, two issues by Jay Lynch, 1974, and the second one in 1981. There you go. Uh, RK, the comics review. This is one we'll be talking about a lot later. This had seven issues from 1975 to 1976. Now, that uh, that Jay Lynch we've been mentioning, he's kind of like the closest thing to an archivist for this kind of stuff, right? It seems that way, yeah. He seems... He seems to be in the background a lot, and he seems to have the statistics. So uh, I wonder if uh, what he just exactly, you know, I wonder what his collection looked like is basically it. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm sure he is. Uh, I, I think he is the source for a lot of these originals, and he was just heavily in the scene, but not necessarily looming so large that he couldn't keep his comics neat, if you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> now, this is an interesting one. Quack Comics won six issues from 1960... I'm sorry, 1976 to 1977. This featured work from uh, Sergio Aragonis, who would do uh, Gru the Wanderer, uh, and a lot in Mad, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. As well as... Now, this is strange. A, a rejected Howard the Duck story. That's right. Uh, that, that's interesting. Yeah, and from what I saw, it wasn't a Gerber-written one, which wasn't that unusual. Other people mm-hmm. did write Howard the Duck, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what they rejected, because what they accepted was pretty crazy a lot of times, so... Yeah. I don't know. Now, there's also a Twisted Sisters. It's an all-female comic put together by a future Mrs. Crum. Uh, how, do you, how are we saying this here? A- Aileen. Oh. Aileen Kaminsky and Diane Noonan. This ran from 1976 to 1994. Uh, it's more of a trade collection of new comics at the end. Um, there's also Anarchy Comics, ran four issues from 1978 to 1987. And this might be, the te- might be a tenth of the comics available at the time, So, uh, particularly during this big explosion. From uh, 74, I'm sorry, from 70 to 74. Yeah, and you see things kind of slow down after 74, they, you know, but before that, there's like, you know. Yes. We named like 10 comics that came out in 1970. It was unbelievable. It, the ex- and half of them were by Crumb. It's, I know, I mean, so <laughs> prolific, and, and we'll talk about it. He was so prolific during this time, but uh, all these guys, I mean, suddenly there was an outlet for people to draw the, the weird comics they had always wanted to. And uh, it's it's unbelievable. When you really start digging into it again, there's going to be a resource in the show notes that you could spend days just reading about oh, underground. Yeah. Forget even reading the actual comics, just what the comics were. But uh, we'll do our best, and we're going to talk. <laughs> we're going to talk about some of the creators of these comics again. This is a very partial list, but these are the guys that we thought were. Uh, exemplified, I think, the best of the best of the underground scene. Not necessarily ones that you may have heard of in the mainstream, but who, you know, made a real impact uh, in comics regardless. And then later on, you'll see they made impacts in other industries. So first, we got the fabulous furry freak brother himself, Gilbert Shelton. He was born uh, May May 31st, 1940 in Houston, Texas. He attended Washington and Lee University, Texas A&M University, and the University of Texas at Austin and eventually got his Bachelor of Sciences there in 1961. Uh, the first comics he ever published in the, were in the University of Texas's humor magazine, The Texas Ranger. And again, this college humor magazine, this is going to be coming up a lot, obviously. This mm-hmm. was a breeding ground for a lot of this stuff. Uh, he moved to New York City in 1961 and worked in magazine layout for a auto magazine, I believe. Uh, he snuck his drawings in here and there, but he moved back to Texas the year later, uh, to enroll in grad school in order to avoid the draft. Back at the University of Texas in Austin, his first Wonder Warthog strips were featured in the short-lived humor magazine Bacchanal. And Wonder Warthog, uh, you kind of got to see it to believe it. It's yeah. sort of a uh, a crusading 
crude warthog who usually saves the day by completely uh, destroying and maiming people. It's uh, <laughs> kind of very young ones in its way, actually, not too yeah. bad. Uh, but he would eventually, he'd become the editor of the Texas Ranger, and he would publish more Wonder Warthog strips because who was going to stop the editor? He, uh, while he was at the University of Texas at Austin, he switched over to their art school where he became friends with Janis Joplin. That's just an aside. Uh, in 1964, he was drafted, but he was declared medically unfit because he had admitted to taking psychedelic drugs. See, that worked back then. Yes. Don't let them kid you in high school, though. It doesn't work anymore, kids. Uh, <laughs> he drifted to Cleveland, where his girlfriend was attending the Cleveland Institute of Art in late 1964, and he lived there to 1965, and he even applied to the American Green Card Company, but he was turned down. Right at the exact same time, Robert Crumb was living in Cleveland doing the same exact thing, except he worked at the card company. So uh, what might have been? They might have worked right next to each other for all if uh, things had played out differently. He eventually moved back to Austin, Texas, formed the Gilbert Shelton Ensemble, and recorded a 45 RPM record for ESP Records in 1966, which was uh, If I Was a Hell's Angel Backed with Southern Stock Car Man. And if anyone has that MP3 or those MP3s, please send them to us. I really need to hear them. Um, so he created posters, and he was the art director for the Vulcan Gas Company, which was a rock venue in Austin. Uh, they were in the style of these posters we talked about before from San Francisco by uh, Victor Moscoso and Rick Griffin. He moved to San Francisco in 1968, hoping to get more poster work, but he became a star of underground comics instead. He created the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and Fat Freddy's Cat, which was sort of a spinoff of uh, the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Uh, Fat Freddy was one of the members of the Freak Brothers, and his cat had his own adventures where he talked to cockroaches and things like that. Uh, and then he, he co-founded Ripoff Press, as we mentioned before. Mm. He drew the cover to the Grateful Dead's 1978 album, Shakedown Street. And uh, right now, he publishes the ongoing underground comic Not Quite Dead with French cartoonist Peak. Uh, first issue was 1993, latest issue was number 7 in 2010. And he did contribute a new Freak Brothers comic to Zap Comics box set that came out, I think that was 2014. You don't, you don't know about this thing? It's, it's real expensive, but let me tell you, uh, yeah. <laughs> really nice. Uh, and he currently lives in France between Burgundy and Paris, so he's still out there, folks. Still kicking, yeah. yeah. We uh, also got Bill Griffith, uh, as William Henry Jackson Griffith, born January 20th, 1944, in Brooklyn, New York. He grew up in Levittown, Long Island. His neighbor was a science fiction illustrator, uh, Ed Ermschwiller, mm -hmm. uh, who Griffith credits as an inspiration. They actually became pretty uh, pretty friendly. I think uh, I read somewhere that that Ermschwiller uh, painted uh, Bill Griffith on a cover of a science fiction novel. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and he, and he painted pictures of his mother too. I did I did see that also uh, as a as a young kid. He kind of worked at his, as his assistant, cleaning brushes, I guess, and things like that. So yeah, I mean they were they were close. It seems as families. Yeah. yeah. Now he would move to New York City in 1968, and he uh, contributed comics to the East Village Other and Screw magazine. This is a comic. Is a comic about a combative, angry amphibian called Mister Toad. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Uh, soon he became a big figure in the underground comic scene. Uh, moved just like everyone else to San Francisco in, in 1970, so he joined that party. Um, his first titles were Tales of Toad, and he did uh, Young Lust with Jay Kinney. Uh, published his first Zippy the Pinhead comic in Real Pulp Comics Number no. One, his 1971. Now you've seen those comics, right? Those you see in mainstream yeah, they papers. Are. Yeah, they're they're all over the place and they're they're homely, but they're they're around. Yep. 
Um, he uh, co-founded and co-edited Arcade the Comics Review with Art Spiegelman in 1975. Uh, he did wacky packages cards for Topps Trading Cards uh, with uh, many other underground cartoonists, but this was only for a brief time. And you'll find out why they all worked for it very soon. Yes. Uh, Zippy the Pinhead went weekly in the Berkeley Barb in 1976, and then was syndicated nationally, like you said, through uh, Ripoff Press. Um, comic is still being uh, published in the newspapers to this day, uh, though its peak of popularity was probably maybe the 80s during, uh, you know, the Gary Larson Far Side era. Yeah. And uh, he would uh, marry uh, Underground Comics' favorite, uh, Diane Noonan. Yep, the same, the same one who co-published uh, that Twisted with, Sisters with uh, yes, Aileen with, uh, Kaminsky. Aileen. So it's all connected, folks, these people. It's all a very incestuous world, and I really wish yes. we had time to talk about every person involved, but we don't. Uh, but here's a guy who is sort of a linchpin of the whole operation, Jay Lynch. Oh. Hey! He was born in January 7th, 1945 in Orange, New Jersey. He grew up in Florida until 1963 when he moved to Chicago. He worked a service bar at the Second City Comedy Club one summer and moved into actor-comedian Del Close's old apartment. Uh, the landlord let him live there for free on the condition that he fixed it up after the way Close had left it. I can I can only imagine what the hell was going on there. And Del Close, uh, he's, he actually uh, comes into the comics world in the 80s. He uh, co-wrote a horror title from DC called Wasteland with uh, oh, John right. Ostrander. That's right. I, I, you know, I, I when I saw the name, I was like, I kind of know him, but I felt there was something yeah. familiar. But yeah, he did. I think he did other comics work uh, here and there after that, too. I think he did, too. Yeah, he seems like a very, uh, he seems more like one of them mad, bad, and dangerous to know type of dudes. Yeah, I know. It's a, kind of a... Uh, you know, Svengali or whatever, yeah. was, uh, you know, multiply talented or crazy guys. Um, anyway, Jay Lynch contributed comics to Roosevelt University's humor magazine, The Aardvark, which was killed by campus administration after its first <laughs> issue. He also contributed to Cracked Magazine, Sick, and Help Magazines during this period. Uh, he teamed up with Skip Williamson to create the Chicago Mirror in 1967, an underground newspaper with comics by Lynch and Williamson. And he would found Bijou Funnies in 1968, often considered to rival Zap Comics in importance. Relatively speaking, of course, it's important to say, though, he is doing this all from Chicago. Uh, mm -hmm. So this wasn't just something happening in San Francisco. It, it was, there was some, you know, spread out into the rest of the country. Uh, Jay Lynch would contribute to Bogeyman number two and number three and countless other uh, under, underground comics, but he's best known for creating Nard and Pat, first appearing in Bijou Funnies, and then he would have two issues of their own in 1974 and 1981. Uh, I actually remember seeing the one from 81, and it was very weird and featured mm -hmm. a Martian popping thing. Look that up if you don't know what I'm talking about. Mm. He did the weekly strip Phoebe and the Pigeon People with Gary Whitney, uh, on art for the Chicago Reader for 17 years. This one people might know. This one is actually, uh, I wouldn't call it mainstream, but you know, you see it on the internet. People will say this was a cute sentiment or whatever, and they'll put it up on their Facebook. Uh, worked for Tops for many years doing wacky packages and garbage pail kids, and we'll talk about why in very soon. <laughs> Wrote for Mad Magazine in the 1990s, and he published the children's book Otto's Orange Day with Frank Camuso for Toon Books in 2008, and Mo and Joe Fighting Together Forever with Dean Haspiel, Toon Books in 2008. He lives with his wife Jane Lynch, herself was a contributor to the underground scene, though mostly through writing and doing interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we mentioned uh, Art Spiegelman a bit earlier, and uh, we're going to talk about him now. Mm -hmm. He was born Ishtak Avdehem Ben Ziv, Sunray? Sounds good to me. 
good enough. Uh, February 15, 1948, in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, he immigrated to the U.S. with his parents in 1951. His immigration certificate lists his name as Arthur Isidore, but uh, later legally changed his name to Odd. Uh, usually spells it in all in all lowercase, too, yeah, right? Yeah, I don't know why, but yeah, he does. It's kind of like that Cat Ironwood thing. Or like <laughs> so, a E. E. Cummings, I don't know. Who was yeah. That? Now, uh, they originally settled in Norristown, Pennsylvania, but they moved to Regal Park, Queens, in New York City, 1957. That's where my great-grandmother lived. Hey. Uh, yeah. He produced, uh, it seems like a lot of them, produced these mad-inspired fanzines. Yeah, you, you keep hearing the same origins for a lot of these guys. And, you know, a lot of this yeah. is, this is the baby boomer generation, so there happens to be a bunch of people growing up at the same exact time. Yep. But obviously, and, uh, these, these things, these spoke to people, these influences. Absolutely. And his fanzine was called Blase. And he did this at Russell Sage Junior High School. Uh, by the time he entered high school, the, the High School of Art and Design in 1963, he was already selling artwork to the uh, Long Island Press and other outlets. Uh, indeed, he was published, He was approached by United Feature Syndicate to pitch a comic strip, but he turned them down, not wanting to cheapen his art. How about that, right? I know. I can't believe I think <laughs> going into high school, too. I mean, he would have been yeah. 14 years old with his own syndicated comic strip. That's amazing. And it's, it's, you know, it's quite the turnaround from the comic illustrator's dream of the golden age yeah. where they all wanted to be, uh, they all wanted the syndicated strips. Oh, yeah. and they, were, they were just doing comics to pass the time until they could Yeah, get they syndicated. thought comics was the ghetto. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, he would meet uh, Woody Gelman, art director at Topps Trading Cards in 1963, and he suggested Art apply after graduation. Art's parents wanted him to find a financially secure living, much like most parents do. <laughs> uh, they suggested dentistry, but he instead enrolled at the Harper College and studied art and philosophy. He uh, got his start freelancing for Topps Trading Card Company in 1965 and uh, co-created Wacky Packages and Garbage Pail Kids. Uh, so he, he was getting all these other cartoon, cartoonist work. Yep. And, and, and the list does, I didn't, I should have made a list, but it goes on and on and on. I mean, that did work for Tops over the years. It, oh, yeah. He was hooking people up for sure. Yeah, so this was his main uh, financial support for two decades. Uh, he published his own comics that he sold on street corners and had uh, work published in the East Village of there in 1966 and 1967. He uh, did go to San Francisco, albeit for a short time, in uh, 1967 to catch the vibe. I, I think he uh, just went there just to legitimize himself, right? Just to say, I did, I went, be, right? I did, I stood in San Francisco, That's a, I'm an underground cartoonist now. He needed that merit badge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, in, in late 1968, he had a nervous breakdown and dropped out of college. Uh, he'd been taking a lot of LSD at the time. Uh, he was in the uh, Binghamton State Mental uh, Institution for a while. And when he got out, his mother killed herself. Uh, her brother had just died, so might have had something to do with it. Yeah. Um, now, Spiegelman, he would finally move to San Francisco. He, he would commit to the, uh, to the vibe, I guess. <laughs> and this is uh, 1971, uh, and he immediately launched into the underground comic scene. He did the uh, complete Mr. Infinity in 1970, and the Viper Vicar of Vice, Villainy and Vickedness in 1972. <laughs> uh, in 72, he contributed a three-page three story to an underground comic. Uh, this is Funny Aminals, uh, and you might have heard of something like this. It was about the Holocaust, with uh, Jews cast as mice and the Nazis uh, cast as uh, felines, called uh, Daikatsen. Uh, this was uh, called Maus, M-A-U-S. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you might have heard of that one. 
Now, uh, he published an autobiographical work, Prisoner on Hell Planet, about dealing with his mother's suicide. Uh, this was in Short Order Comics, number one, 1973. Uh, Spiegelman also edited this comic. Uh, and after this, his work got increasingly more experimental and weird. And uh, we should be discussing it more at length, but uh, this is kind of a... Uh, this is kind of an inch deep, mile wide type deal. Absolutely, uh, we don't yeah. have the time. I wish we could. I mean, you know, there's there's tons of crazy experimental things he did, but they do kind of come out of the purview of comics, which is, you know, it's definitely arguable, and I'm happy to argue with anyone who wants to write in and tell me that we sh- <laughs> this should be a, a full episode at Art Sp- on Art Spiegelman because he certainly could get one. Yeah, he definitely could. Um, so Art, he taught cartooning at the San Francisco Academy of Art from 1974 to 1975, and he co-edited Arcade, the comics review, with Bill Griffith beginning 1975 as a cushion for underground artists as the market began to wane. We'll talk more about that towards the end of the episode. But this whole thing was conceived as a way to kind of like give these guys a little bit of work. You see this throughout his life. Uh, Art is constantly trying to get his uh, colleagues and Artists some more work. It's kind of a difficult thing to do uh, Spiegelman moved back to New York City in 1975 which spelled Arcade's demise though because he basically left it on Bill Griffith and his wife or his to-be wife Diane uh, Newman's Newman. shoulder and uh, they couldn't keep it going While on hiatus from architectural school in Palace a, a woman named Francois Mouly was visiting New York City in 1974 She was looking for comics from which to learn English and she found Arcade and she wanted to meet its creators. Now, avant-garde filmmaker Ken Jacobs, whose only film you might have heard of is he directed Tom Tom the Piper's Son. You ever hear of that one, Chris? Never heard of well, it. Well, that was it then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a bunch of crazy movies that, you know, you, you only see in a smelly art house. Anyway, he introduced her to Spiegelman, and they became friendly but not close. But after she read Prisoner in Hell Planet, Muli wanted to contact Spiegelman, and an eight-hour eight phone call solidified their relationship. And he would follow her to France when, she, when he continued her university studies. Spiegelman was able to get her work as a colorist for Marvel Comics, and definitely I'm going to be running looking for her credits now, see when yeah. she did the coloring and what, what comics they were. Uh, in 1977, they returned to New York City, and visa problems were solved by their marriage. There you go. That was simple. Yeah. Now it's they, not as easy to do that these days. No, you can't just you can't just whip <laughs> that out. But yeah, back then, just quickie marriage down a court hall. There you go. You're a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, they published Breakdowns, a magazine called Breakdowns, in 1977. This was really a collection of Spiegelman's experimental cartoons. But it was poorly distributed, and 30% of the print run was pulped due to errors. After this, Francois learned about offset printing. Uh, and would have much more control of the production process going forward because they also did many more uh, or a few more magazines together. Hmm. Uh, she even brought a printing press into her loft, although I don't know how oh. much use it got. I have a feeling, you know, that maybe that was left for handbills and such. <laughs> now they co-edited a magazine called Raw in 1980. This was subtitled "The Graphics Magazine of Postponed Suicides," and this was a a very fundamental magazine at the time for breaking a lot of new artists. Uh, it did have work by Spiegelman, Crum, and Griffith, but it also broke artists like Linda Barry, Chris Ware, Charles Burns, and many, many others that uh, mm. pretty much have stayed underground, or they became children's artists, but they are yeah. known now. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually just found a, uh, I found a Black Hole and X'd Out by uh, Charles Burns in a half price books, and Red X'd Out, which I think is a more recent one that he did. Yeah. And uh, but I haven't gotten the black hole yet. I wanna. I'm looking forward to checking that out though. 
Uh, now back to uh, Spiegelman. Based on recorded interviews with his father in 1978 and a visit to Auschwitz in 79, Spiegelman produced Mouse, who's the book-length autobiographical-slash-biographical story of his father's experience during the Holocaust. Now, this came out not as a book, but it came out a chapter at a time uh, in Raw, beginning with issue number two. When he heard of uh, Steven Spielberg's cartoon, An American Tale, which he uh, was sure was inspired by Mouse, he rushed to find a publisher. And he did. His Pantheon Press, they produced volume one of Mouse, as was Mouse, colon, A Survivor's Tale, and subtitled My Father Bleeds History. This is the uh, this is the comic they make you read. In, this is one of the comics they make you read in co- college. Oh, now it's more than one? No, you, when, I went to, yeah. when I went to college, this was it. This was the only one that was uh, considered worth reading, you know? No, now, uh, now there are entire uh, curriculums based around comic books. Oh, boy. I went too which, soon. Yes, and I, and I went too late. <laughs> now, uh, let's see here. Uh, he would uh, he taught at the uh, School of Visual Arts from 1978 to 1987. He uh, would quit Tops in 1989 after they auctioned off some of his original work rather than returning it to him. Uh, he admitted that they were his Medici for the financial and geographic freedom the work had given him. I mean, that, that, and that was his quote, too, but, you know, it's true when you think about this guy went wherever the hell he wanted, whenever he wanted. Whenever he years, wanted. you know? And yep. like, what a, kind of an awesome freedom to have. Imagine that, right? Uh, now, Volume 2 of Mouse, which was subtitled, And Here My Troubles Began, was published in 1991 to rave reviews and huge sales. Uh, he had an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art and won a special Pulitzer Prize in uh, 1992, which is, this is the first comic to win a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, though, to be fair, not a lot of book-length comics were in the running. No. Um, I, I think there's only a handful that have been even to this day. Yeah, kind of, well, they're not going to take a collection of Justice League. You know what I mean? That's the thing. So it's got to be an original <laughs> graphic novel. But yeah, that's, even it's... even the Giffen Demetrius run. No, even that would <laughs> maybe volume maybe part of volume one would make it. There you go. Now I can think of this, and I can think of uh, that Judd Winnick, uh, Pedro and Me. That, oh, those yeah. are the only two I can think of that, well, off the top of my head anyway, that got Pulitzer's. They do win more book awards, though, now, too. I mean, they, they you know, comics win National Book Awards and Children's Awards and stuff. They, that yeah. used to, it used to never even be considered, or really did the comics exist to do that. But Sure, sure. Now, back to Spiegelman. <laughs> he was hired by uh, Tina Brown to do illustrations for The New Yorker, which he did from uh, 1992 to 2002. Uh, he did his first cover in uh, the February 15th, 1993 issue, and uh, he would go on to publish 21 covers in all. Uh, he published his first children's book, Open Me, Colon, I'm a Dog, through HarperCollins in 1997. Uh, Art and uh, Mouly uh, edited a, the children's anthology Little Lit, which uh, included work from many of the underground comics contemporaries and students. Uh, he left the New Yorker in 2003 due to a perceived consolidation of mass media under George Bush's presidency, and uh, joked that he wished that he had done it later in the year, when he uh, when he could have quit in protest after the New Yorker published an article favoring the uh, the Iraq War invasion. Yeah, which uh, is hard to believe now. Huh? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, can't, I don't know. I'd love to see that article. I would was uh, framed, but all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's banished from the internet. <laughs> uh, now, most recent work has been pretty politicized and critical of the war, which you know is something. You, no matter what side you're on, there is something to. It's worth said. criticizing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, most recently, he sat in on a protest panel in at the planned uh, Freedom of Expression 
Freedom of Expression Courage Award Ceremony yeah. for French uh, satirical magazine Char- Charlie Hebdo, uh, whose staff was slain by terrorists in 2015. Uh, to be frank, uh, I'm not sure if he was for or against the award. Yeah, you know, it was we so weird. Know. It's so weird. His whole uh, you gotta if you read accounts of that uh, panel, it's it's just very odd. His his the way he reacted to people and sort of strangely combative for what you think they were there for the uh, unified reason, but I guess not. Yeah, but they, there's politics everywhere, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, now he's still uh, he's still married to Francois, and they have two grown children. We have Nadja Rachel and Dashiel Allen. Now, you know, I, we went through his whole history. This is something that I, I want you to try to remember and look at his trajectory as a guy trying to break into the industry, taking work at Tops to make ends meet, and, like, mm-hmm. just trying to get published any way he can to somebody that suddenly he's got, you know, exhibits at the MoMA, and he's, just, you know, art directing at, ticket, yeah. at the New Yorker. Uh, you know, the tides changed for Art Spiegelman, and his sort of attitudes changed, as many of us do as we grow older. You'll find <laughs> young young folks, you won't be the same person you are now. Uh, I just want you to remember that. It's not going to be important this episode, but we will be talking more about Art Spiegelman uh, in future episodes about underground comics, because they do continue. But right now, we're going to talk about one of my favorite gross artists. Uh, S. Clay Wilson, also known as Steve Clay Wilson, born in July 19... Ah, sorry. Born July 25th, 1941 in Lincoln, Nebraska. He attended the University of Nebraska. He was trained as a medic in the United States Army and upon discharge moved to Lawrence, Kansas and held several, uh, you know, fly-by-night jobs. Eventually moved to San Francisco in 1968 with his friend Gus and his old lady Nadra in a Volkswagen bus to complete the cliché. <laughs> he met up with Charles Plymel, that was the guy that Don Donahue had used his printing press, remember? Uh, Charles Plymel introduced him to Robert Crumb, and Robert Crumb found his work a revelation, and they produced a the very crude pornographic comic. Well, crude is not the right word, but very pornographic, violent comic, Snatch, later that year. Uh, Robert Crumb said... Of S. Clay Wilson's work, the content was something like I'd never seen before anywhere. The level of mayhem, violence, dismemberment, naked women, loose body parts, huge obscene sex organs, a nightmare vision of hell on earth never so graphically illustrated before in the history of art. Suddenly, my own work seemed insipid. Uh, He created the characters The Checkered Demon and The Hog Riding Fools. And you got to see this stuff to believe it, guys. I'm telling you, it's uh, if you ever want to see what a cross section of a uh, penis looks like when it's cut, this this is the comic to look at. Um, his work was grotesque to the point of absurdity, often very literate in the balloons, but absolutely puerile in the pictures. And his work even frightened his fellow cartoonists. He contributed to Yellow Dog, all three of the rip-off review of Western culture issues, uh, the arcade, the review of comics, and the 1980s Robert Crumb comic Weirdo, which we'll talk about more in the next episode. He illustrated William Burroughs' The Wild Boys in 1971 and Cities of the Red Knight in 1981, the German editions. And he began illustrating classic Hans Christian Andersen and Brothers Grimm stories in 1994, uh, which is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> like, should this guy be allowed to re- draw children's stories? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. But he explained it in an interview. He said, I did a children's book entitled Wilson's, Wilson's Anderson. I always wanted to be a children's book illustrator way back when, but I took some LSD and took a left turn graphically. <laughs> we got William Burroughs to write us a little blurb on the back, but they misspelled Burroughs. How could they do that? The road stories are pretty 
lugubrious in the rose elf for instance where the woman is kissing the cold blue dead lips of her lover's head later versions leave all this stuff out disney takes a great old story and they bleach it as they used to say about music to make it palatable and generic these stories are supposed to scare the shit out of little kids so they'll eat all their broccoli <laughs> so i guess that's why he did it but he suffered a severe and mysterious brain urge injury on november 1st in 2008 uh, that was after attending the alternative press expo in san francisco and drinking throughout the day Wilson left the house of a friend and was found by two passersby, face down and unconscious between parked cars. Among his injuries were a fractured neck and left orbital bone. It's not known if he was assaulted or passed out and fell. He can't remember anything, which is wow. not, not uncommon in that kind of trauma. Uh, but it messed him up badly. He was able to regain the ability to speak and write by 2009, but he still requires special care. Uh, he married Lorraine Chamberlain, his girlfriend of 10 years, on August 10, 2010. But in 2012, he was rushed to the hospital with fluid buildup on the brain, and there developed a blood clot in his leg. He is discharged, but has fallen further to dementia and is probably not long for this world. Uh, there is some sort of a fund, and I, I'll link that in the, uh, in the show shows. notes if, you, if you're yeah. interested. But, you know, definitely to find out more about the guy, because interesting, interesting, gross stuff. Absolutely. Now uh, we're going to talk about uh, Trina Robbins. Uh, she was born uh, August 17th, 1938. We think somewhere around New York City, right? Yeah. Uh, to be honest, even finding her actual birthday was not that easy. But uh, <laughs> It's weird. Some of, some of them, it's a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> now, uh, she was active in the science fiction scene in the 1950s and contributed artwork to the Hugo Award-nominated fanzine Habakkuk. Sure. Oh, yeah. Habakkuk. She first contributed comics to the East Village Other and became part of the production team, as many of the contributors did. Uh, she contributed to the comic book spinoff Gothic Blimpworks that we discussed earlier. Uh, she was very involved in the 60s rock scene and was close friends with the Birds and uh, Jim Morrison. Uh, Joni Mitchell's song, Ladies of the Canyon, is partially about Trina. Uh, she's the first lady in, of the canyon. Yeah, of three ladies, yeah. She had an East Village clothing boutique in the late 1960s called Broccoli. She made clothing for Mama Cass, Donovan, and others. Uh, designed Vampirella's costume in 1969 for Warren Publishing's Vampirella No. 1, which was uh, drawn by Frank Frazetta. Moved, like most others, to San Francisco in 1970. Uh, immediately worked for the feminist underground newspaper, It Ain't Me, Babe, and published It Ain't Me, Babe comics in the same year. Uh, she was and remains a tireless supporter of female cartoonists, for instance, editing women's comics for 20 years. Uh, she wrote and drew Misty, six issues, December to October 1985, for uh, Marvel Comics Star Imprint, which was their... Uh, I don't want to say all age because I think they all were all age, but this is, these are the ones that were aimed at the younger, yeah, the younger, uh, the younger crowd. Yep. Yeah, uh, and this is an updating of the uh, of Millie the model. So uh, Misty was a now matronly Millie's teenage niece, which uh, I don't know if she's still in continuity or not. No, I don't think so. Because <laughs> I think Millie is young again. Uh, now she drew a four issue limited series, The Legend of Wonder Woman. This is May through September 1986 for DC, uh, written by Kurt Busiek as part of her post crisis reboot. Uh, now Trina Robbins is actually notable for being the first woman to draw Wonder Woman. I know, wow. That, is, in 86, yeah. too, like, you know, like 40 years, at, 45 years after the fact. Yeah, because now it seems like every time you look, it's. 
you know, outside of just this post-rebirth time, it's usually uh, women doing the writing, and the uh, they're usually the, the creative teams are usually more diverse. Uh, it seems that way for Wonder Woman. They seem to yeah. at least have a one token uh, lady. Although they do on uh, oh no, there isn't a lady even drawing it now. So no, not well. There is half the time. Now, uh, Nicola. I... Was it Nicola Scott? Yeah, and I think Bilkis yeah, Evely is supposed to start dry, drawing it, so mm. she'll get her womanly wiles in there, don't you worry. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Robbins collaborated with uh, Colleen Duran on the uh, DC Comics graphic novel. This is Wonder Woman, The Once and Future Story, 1998, which is about spousal abuse. Uh, in the 1990s, she continued to uh, promote female cartoonists and other strong women by authoring several nonfiction books for various publishers, including, but not limited to, a Century of Women's Cartoonist uh, through Kitchen Sink in 1993. The Great Women Superheroes, also through Kitchen Sink in 1997. Uh, From Girls to Girls, G-R-R-R-L-Z. A History of Women's Comics from Teens to Zines through Chronicle in 1999. The Great Women Cartoonist through Watson Guptill in 2001. Uh, Eternally Bad Goddesses with Attitude through Carnary Press in 2001. Uh, Tender Murders, Women Who Kill, also Canary Press in 2003. That's where we sort of take a little the, the detour from the, the uh, cartooning women right there. Yes. You know, the murdering women. <laughs> uh, Wild Irish Roses, Tales of Bridget's Kathleen's and Warrior Queens, also Canary Press, 2004. And Pretty in Ink, my favorite Molly Ringwald movie there. <laughs> uh, this is a Pretty in Ink, North American Women Cartoonist, 1980, sorry, 1896 through 2013. This came out through Fantagraphics in 2013. She uh, currently writes New Adventures of Honey West, a female detective dating back to the pulp novels, which uh, first appeared in 1957. Uh, she was and is an outspoken critic of Robert Crumb about whom she said, it's weird to me how willing people are to overlook the hideous darkness in Crumb's work. What the hell is funny about rape and murder? It's a good question. Yeah, sure. Robbins also criticized Mike Diodato's portrayal of Wonder Woman in the 1990s, calling his version of the character a barely-clothed hypersexual pinup. Uh, currently lives in San Francisco with her partner, Steve Lealoha. Leo, Leo, you did a good. That was good too. I wouldn't have, couldn't have done that better myself. Uh, it's important to say though that Trina was criticizing Crumb at, at the peak of his popularity when people were not criticizing him at all. Yeah. Um, she was really the first one to say, "Wait a second, I don't want to see uh, pictures of a girl getting her head chopped off and then her body being used for you know violent sex, which is actually something that happens in a Robert Crumb cartoon that I'm thinking of." So, uh, also, there's, there's going to be more on her in the next episode. I, I left it out of here, but um, there is sort of an interesting power struggle right at the wane of underground comics between her and some other creators, but we'll talk about that later. Right now, we just want to talk about the uh, people that uh, made the scene. So, uh, yeah. Vaughn Baudet, born July 22nd, 1941 in Utica, New York. He was the second of four children. Older brother Victor, younger siblings Vincent and Valerie. So, we got... Victor Vaughn, Vincent, and Valerie. I came, I saw, I conquered, right? That's a big... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Father Kenneth was a mean drunk, and he and uh, Vaughn drew to escape an unca- unhappy childhood. His parents divorced when Vaughn was 10, and then Vaughn went to live with relatives in Washington, D.C. I'm unclear whether his siblings went. I just don't know. Uh, he joined the Army at age 19. He went AWOL, but then he earned an honorable discharge after a psychiatric evaluation. I wonder if he got, wow. I wonder if he got the uh, I took LSD dispensation or something that uh, the other guy got. 
Maybe he got the uh, the, the clinger thing. So, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> he went yeah, to Section it, 8. That's right. They saw him in a dress. They were like, oh, never mind. You know, we, <laughs> anyway. Married Barbara Hawkins in 1961, and he only had he had one son named Mark, and that was in 1963. Uh, Vaughn self-published Das Kampf, considered by some to be the first underground comic, and this thing he just literally put, distributed around Syracuse. Uh, it wasn't even mail order, really. If you didn't get a copy in 1963, you never did. Uh, he attended Syracuse University, contributed to their humor magazine, Sword of Damocles, and it was in this that he created Cheech Wizard, which was his most famous creation. Sort of looks like a, a starred condom with legs. I don't know if you ever saw it. Hmm. Uh, it I don't think I have. Yeah, it was it was something big, I guess, in the 70s. Uh, you see a lot of T-shirts, and I guess it kind of has fallen out of favor. But it's it was it was huge at one time. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, Baudet did several covers for science fiction novels, including the cover and interiors of R.A. Lafferty's Space Chantley in 1968. In 1969, he moved to New York City at the behest of Trina Robbins and contributed and did production for the East Village Other. It seems like if you lived in New York and you contributed to the East Village Other, you also did production work for the East Village Other. There was no way around it. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn helped found Gothic Blimp Works and edited the first two issues and created a post-apocalyptic series called Cobalt 60 that debuted as a 10-page black-and-white story in the science fiction fangreen Shangra Lafairs, a.k.a. Shaggy, number 73, in 1968. Uh, he won the 1969 Hugo Award for Best Fanzine Artist, based largely on Cobalt 60, but he never returned back to that work. And I've seen that, and it's pretty interesting stuff. They reprinted it in heavy metal years later. His wife divorced him in 1972, and he immediately moved to San Francisco with Spain Rodriguez and Trina Robbins, just like that's all, all he was waiting for was to cut the, the chain, and he was out. That's it. Uh, he was incredibly prolific from 1968 to 1975. Here's a short list of, of the things he did. Uh, War Lizards was a comic that ran sporadically in the East Village Other. Wally Wood's Wits End, Pig Society, and Baudet's own Junk Waffle from 1969 to 1972. Dead Bone ran in the men, men's magazine Cavalier from 1969 to 1975, originally in black and white, and then it was colored when the strip when the strip changed its title to Dead Bone Erotica and later simply to Erotica. Uh, episodes of Cheech Wizard ran in the funny pages of National Lampoon magazine in almost every issue from 1971 to 1975. That's where I first saw it. My uh, dad had some old issues, and I thought it was very weird, and they had boobs. Uh, uh, black and white science fiction parody Sunpot in Galaxy Science Fiction in the early 1970s. This was later republished in color in the magazine Heavy Metal. Baudet's monthly comic strip feature Purple Pit Pictography ran in Swank Magazine in 1971 to 1972. Uh, Swamp Thing co-creator Bernie Wrightson did the panel dart for five of Purple Pictography's episodes based on Baudet's scripts and rough layouts. And he published four issues of Junk Waffle from 1971 through 1974, with through Print Mint, uh, published the graphic novel The Man in 1972 and through Print Mint. In 1972, he began the Cartoon Concert Tour, where he would voice his characters live in front of an audience while panels were projected on a screen behind him. That's got to be an interesting thing. Right? Yeah, really. <laughs> now, uh, his first show was October 1972 at the Detroit Triple Fanfare uh, for 80 people. He performed at several comic book conventions and was picked up by the Bantam Lecture Bureau to do the uh, college lecture circuit. Uh, he even performed in the Louvre in uh, France. Wow. He, 
Yeah, he would die not too long after July 18th, 1975 in San Francisco, California, due to autoerotic asphyxiation. Uh, last words to his son, Mark, were, uh, Mark, I have seen God four times, and I'm going to see him again soon. That's number one for me, and you're number two. Uh, nice guy. Good word. Thanks, Dad. That's something, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, his, his ashes were scattered from a, a Cessna airplane off the coast of uh, Point Reyes, California. Uh, Baudet's lettering and characters were a huge influence on New York City subway graffiti writers in the late 70s and into the 80s. And uh, that's where we're going to leave it for now. We do have another guy we want to talk about after the break, but he is uh, he's another big one. Uh, but before now, we just wanted to make sure we covered a lot of the, well, um, the heavier hitters in Definitely, the underground yeah. scene who... Uh, the more prolific and uh, experimental and uh, seminal creators of the uh, movement. But again, to say that this is a short list, it really doesn't know. It's, it's tiny. There are dozens of yeah. other names that could be mentioned, and we will develop some of them in the next episode, but we just don't have the time to go into every person. But know that these people were all over the place. They were in many, many of the comics from the era, and that's uh, mm -hmm. why, why they were selected. But yeah, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to be telling you about a fella that uh, still is meaningful to comics today. Yeah, absolutely. Myself, I never really became a full-fledged hippie. I mean, I said far out and groovy and oh wow and all that, I, I confess. But somehow I was too uptight or too modest to ever really let it all hang out, as they used to say. <laughs> dance in my bare feet in the park and play a bamboo flute and all that. And Janis Joplin used to say, come on, Crumb, you really want to really be popular with the girls and all that? Just to let your hair grow long and uh, get yourself one of those big flowing shirts and all that. Come on. I said, I can't do that. <laughs> Still, though, I was definitely caught up in the, the general optimism of that period. And I, I believe, like a lot of other people, that all you need is love and that the world is going to blossom out and smell like roses forevermore and all that. And that's where I came up with all these characters. Like White Man, it's basically represented the kind of guy that my father was, this sort of rigid person who's basically caught up in all these illusions about what you're supposed to do with your life as a member of society. I had this character called the Old Pooperoo that just represented this kind of workaday aspect of reality where you just have to get down and shovel shit all the time just to stay alive. <laughs> and then, of course, Angel Food Mix Spade and the Vulture Demonesses and all those larger-than-life female characters. Welcome back, everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed that uh, wonderful break that I'm not positive even what it is yet, but it's going to be yes. amazing, whatever it is, I'm sure. Um, oh, I'm shocked. So, we, yeah, whatever it is, <laughs> it's going to shock and amaze you. So, you know, we went through a bunch of seminal comics creators, but there's one guy that uh, really has to be, uh, you know, centered on here, uh, a fellow by the name of Dennis Kitchen, who will loom large... Uh, in the mainly in the production side of underground comics, and then even into uh, comics and their reprints today. 
Uh, so Dennis Kitchen was born August 27, 1946. He grew up in Wisconsin. He was the son of a Scotch-Irish father and a German mother. His brother James, who was a talented sculptor, and his sister, who had a drawing talent but never pursued it, those are his two siblings. Father died on the job of a stroke when Dennis was 13. Claims that's when his childhood ended. His mother worked overnights and slept during the day, and Dennis had to care for his younger siblings. Now, he grew up reading Little Lulu and Uncle Scrooge comics, like many of his contemporaries. And as he matured, he found himself really enjoying the pre-code horror titles, just like a young Reggie. Uh, during sophomore project high school, during a sophomore project in high school, he had to research and write a paper about the profession they wanted to pursue. Uh, Kitchen wanted to be a cartoonist. However, in his small town of Caledonia, he did not know where to go for research. He entered a contest to run in the Milwaukee Journal to draw a comic for the green sheet section of the paper. Chose to submit a Nancy and Sluggo strip, though he would have preferred his favorite Little Abner, but he didn't think he had the drawing shops for it. Uh, he did not win, probably because he had totally plagiarized another uh, <laughs> comic strip. Started a newspaper in high school where he could draw snippets of things that happened at school. Uh, looks that this is his earliest attempt at satire. They were often confiscated by the dean or whatever. In the eighth grade, his newsletter venture made him a sort of kind of publication called Kleptomaniac, with a C for some reason. Uh, this was because the newsletters were supposed to be passed around and returned to him, but every time somebody would steal it. His venture would be a rental reader. He would charge one to two cents if you wanted to read it, and made about 50 cents per issue. It's but not bad in the 60s. Not too bad, to be honest with you. Pretty weird little racket, and, and I like this sort <laughs> of... Uh, this sort of like, un, you know, almost like Cold War-esque, uh, you know, <laughs> passing around of secret documents. But by the time the 10th issue came out, he changed the title to Klepto with a K. The principal secretary, Miss, Mrs. Bechtold, put, pulls him aside and offers him use of the school's ditto machine for his little newspaper. Now mass-producing Klepto, he upped the price to 15 cents. Comics at the time were a dime. And he had a circulation of 310 copies, which was uh, 15% of the school. Klepto would be edgy but not offensive and often stirred gossip among classmates. The same semester, Kitchen received an F in art class. How about which that? would be kind of prophetic, but uh, joined the <laughs> ROTC. However, he quit due to the wool uniform being uncomfortable. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, he'd buy a secondhand Mad Magazines, which were where he first witnessed the work of Harvey Kurtzman. These were among the first publications he kept he saw comics as having a certain allure that parents and teachers uh, didn't want them around, so they had to be doing something right. Yes. Uh, he would discover uh, Marvel Comics with the launch of uh, the Fantastic Four. Says Now, this is crazy. He says he would buy five copies of every Marvel comic on the stands. This is all facilitated with his uh, klepto earnings. Wow. Um, he would read one copy, and he would pack the other four away, which is an amazing bit of foresight. Sure. Uh, he would later sell them at early Comic-Cons when he needed working capital for his his production company, his Kitchen Sink Press. Now, imagine selling, you know, like Amazing Spider-Man number two for a hundred bucks. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's brutal, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you, you always wish you hung on to them longer until you hung on to them too long. So Too long. Yeah, there's never a something. sweet spot. Yep. Sure. Uh, he met a professor at uh, UW-Madison named George Lockwood, who taught about the history of journalism. He was a journalism major. Uh, this fellow was uh, passionate about comics, which was a pretty pretty big deal to Kitchen in the 60s, you know, uh, having a, a grown-up, a professional grown-up who uh, was passionate about comics. Yeah. Uh, he would, uh, Dennis would start the college magazine Snide in the uh, tradition of, you know, the Harvard Lampoon, all those college humor press 
publications. Yep. Uh, he, this this uh, Snide was actually recognized as an official student organization. They even got an office inside the school, but never received a working budget. Hmm. Uh, he would work with a, a transfer student from New York named Jeff Wimpers. Uh Following graduation, he, he earned his degree in journalism in 1968. Lockwood would give uh, Kitchen his first freelance gig. Uh, Kitchen would go on to self-publish his first comic book, which was Mom's Homemade Comic in 1969. He would print 4,000 copies, and according to Jay Lynch, like like I was saying, he seems like he was an archivist. You know? yeah. He says that this was the eighth underground comic. Um, he would send a copy to Stan Lee just for kicks, and they would wind up becoming pen pals. Uh, Stan offered him to uh, come work in the bullpen, but Dennis declined, feeling he didn't belong there. Uh, he co-founded the weekly alternative magazine slash newspaper called The Bugle. It ran uh, from 1970 to 1978 and circulated in and around Milwaukee. Uh, the underground industry crash, which we'll be getting to in a little bit, of uh, 1973 led to Kitchen finally agreeing to work with Marvel on comics book. But we'll get to that also in a little bit. <laughs> uh, Robert Crumb offered uh, to allow Kitchen Sink publication rights to uh, homegrown funnies. And uh, the stories featured within, such as uh, White Man Meets Bigfoot, were considered both explicit and racist. Uh, in fact, much of Crumb and S. Clay Wilson's works within were considered controversial to minorities, women, and even other counterculture groups. Which led to a uh, funny anecdote, not a funny anecdote, but an anecdote nonetheless, that a Kitchen was uh, confronted on the roof of a building by a group of militant feminists. Uh, I guess they had requested an audience with him, but uh, the building they were at didn't have air conditioning. So he's like, it was too hot. So he said, let's go to the roof. Wow. So they went to the roof, and then they got into a semicircle around yeah. him at That's the a, edge of the roof. This is a brave guy, let me tell you. <laughs> I know. Brave or stupid. Either way, maybe both. Um, now, he claimed it wasn't his job to censor. He has a quote. He says, I thought cartoonists needed to express themselves however they wanted, and out of that would come cultural value and contribute to the political discourse without being overtly didactic or tiresome. Targeting the counterculture should not be off limits. Nothing should be immune. Which I agree with. Oh, you know, absolutely. If it's good for one, it's good for the other. Why not? Yeah, in particular, no, he, he would recruit uh, Howard Cruz, uh, a fellow we spoke about earlier in the uh, Weird Comics History series here uh, when we were discussing Piranha and Paradox for yeah. us. Uh, he's the uh, writer and artist of Stuck Rubber Baby. Uh, he recruited him to edit a book called Gay Comics uh, with an X. This was the first publication created entirely by gay cartoonists. Now, what's interesting is Cruz was not out of the closet at this point, but uh, Dennis had, he just read a bit into uh, Cruz's own underground work and kind of connected the dots. Uh, Cruz uh, wrote and drew a series called Barefoots with a Z that starred a uh, an artist who happened to be gay. And, uh, I mean, it's, I guess it wasn't too many dots that needed to be connected, but yeah. uh, he did it nonetheless. Um, now, to get talent on this book was proved to be quite a challenge because this was at a time where it wasn't acceptable to be out of the closet or as acceptable as it is now, not that it's totally acceptable today. Sure. Um, so it was hard to get people to uh, to contribute work or even just take part. Um, people kind of played their orientation close to the vest at that point because, uh, you know, they didn't want to ruin other career opportunities down the line. Uh, a few when asked for submission because, you know, uh, Kitchen would cold call and perhaps Cruz would as well. And people would get really, really ticked off when they got called. It's like, hey, do you want to contribute to this gay magazine? It's like, hey, well, what, 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 what are you, what are you yeah, trying to say? What are you saying? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out and uh, I'm going to go out and eat a steak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kitchen Sink Press would create an educational comic called Consumer Comics, uh, which was for the Wisconsin Department of Consumer Protection. This was aimed at high schoolers, and it discussed what it meant to be, what to, what it meant to become legally an adult. Uh, this comic was actually copied panel by panel by a copycat. Wow. And uh, Kitchen and the CPD, they had to shut them down, which is, it's kind of funny. Uh, he would work with uh, Will Eisner of The Spirit, and he was able to reprint The Spirit. Uh, the comics reader claims that the underground spirit was, they consider it the first ever direct market comic book. Hmm. Interesting. I, and yeah. I guess, so, and, and that was distributed to head shops and the like and stuff like that, I guess. I don't um, even know. Because that really is, you know, as we'll talk about kind of a little bit later on, that's sort of the beginnings of a direct market for comics. You know, before mm -hmm. that, there just wasn't such a thing. Um, so this Dennis Kitchen is a real mover and a shaker in the biz, and, and even later in life, he was behind many of the in, uh, integral uh, reprints that would bring a lot of these early comics to light. Um, even, yeah, especially, probably not the last time we'll be mentioning him. No, we're going to get back to him later, but yeah, especially during the 80s, which is when I saw a lot of them, it was usually ripoff or Kitchen Sink Press were uh, handling a lot of these uh, reprints of underground comics. But uh, about that fella, Robert Crumb, let's get back to him. Because uh, his story is not over yet either. Uh, as you can tell from what we were talking about, Crumb was a very prolific artist during the underground comics era, as well as very sought after. Over two years at the peak of his production, he produced 320 pages of art. And this is very detailed, heavily inked art, folks. This is oh, yeah. uh, sketched and doodled off in a, in a couple of minutes. He did the cover for Big Brother and the Holding Company's uh, Cheap Thrills, the Columbia Records, 1968. This was Janis Joplin's first band and would be their last record with her singing, and that's a pretty famous cover. You've probably seen it out there in the world. In 1969, animator Ralph Bakshi saw a copy of Crumb's comic Fritz the Cat and thought it would make a good animated movie. Uh, Bakshi wanted to draw it himself because he felt Crumb's style was closest to his own. Uh, Bakshi was well known as being sort of a renegade uh, animator at the time. Um, that's a whole other story in itself, but... yeah. He teamed with producer Steve Krantz and approached Robert Crumb about making a Fritz the Cat cartoon. Uh, Robert Crumb was enthusiastic and lent Bakshi one of his sketchbooks so he could practice in that style, but Bakshi's friend bon, Vaughn Baudet warned him that Crumb was slick and not to work with him. And, you're hmm. gonna, and you will be hearing some more of that kind of talk uh, more in the next episode, but as we go later into Crumb's life. Uh, so they produced the cartoon and were about to pitch it for distribution when it turned out that Robert Crumb had never signed a contract. Uh, Crumb vacillated, and Bakshi went to San Francisco and lived with the Crumbs, uh, he and his wife Dana, in an effort to sway Robert. After two weeks, Robert just still wouldn't sign, and actually walked out of the house uh, during a discussion about it. Uh, while he was gone, his <laughs> wife Dana, who had power of attorney, just signed in his absence. They got 50, they got 50 grand, which was not a small amount of money uh, at the time, for the character and 10% of the gross profits. So Crumb finally saw the movie with his pal Spain Rodriguez, S. Clay Wilson, Robert Williams, and Rick Griffin in February 1972, and he didn't like it. No big mm. surprise. Robert Crumb said the film was really a reflection of Ralph Bakshi's confusion, you know. There's something really real repressed about it. In a way, it's more twisted than my stuff. It's really twisted in some kind of weird, unfunny way. I didn't like that sex attitude in it very much. It's like real repressed horniness. He's kind of letting it out compulsively. Uh, he, also liked, he also disliked the film's criticism of the radical left. 
Uh, he published a comic called Fritz the Cat Superstar in People's Comics in 1972, where a bunch of girlfriends kill Fritz, and that was sort of signified his feelings on the whole Fritz the Cat thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of soured him against, uh, you know, the industry felt like he had been taken for a ride, even though by Bakshi's account, he was the one taken for a ride. Uh, in, in any case, uh, although Robert Crumb claimed that he insisted they take his name off the credits, and uh, Bakshi's company said they'd be happy to, it never happened. His name is still on the credits, and, and he still makes 10% of the gross profits, theoretically. So I have a feeling yeah. he may not have liked the cartoon, but he didn't mind the money. Uh, Robert Crumb's one-page strip, Keep on Trucking. This is one I'm sure a lot of you have seen. It's the three guys walking with big feet, kind of yep. coming into perspective and a very stylized thing. Uh, that was from Zap Comics number one. It became a regular counterculture image. It was printed on all kinds of merchandise in the late 1960s and through the 1970s. Uh, Robert Crumb, uh, after a while, he threatened to sue anyone using images from that strip and reach a deal with AA sales for 750 bucks in 1970 but they did not stop using the image. So this went to court. And uh, mm. the judge ruled that because the image had appeared on the business card of one of Crumb's publishers without the copyright symbol, uh, in 1972, the judge ordered that it had entered the public domain. Uh, Crazy. Per the 1909 Copyright Act. Because it was on some guy's business card. I know. Like, uh, this seems like <laughs> that would not fly today, especially if you were uh, going up against a real comic company. That definitely would not fly. True. Uh, so this soured Robert Crumb on the whole biz for a while. Uh, this is even more insane. In 1977, the decision about the copyright was reversed by the Ninth Circuit Court of San Francisco, and then the IRS came looking for back taxes as if <laughs> as if he'd been collecting royalties on Keep On Trucking all along. It was like, come on. Uh, Crazy. So, you know, at this point, he he was really had enough with the industry and the, the money and business behind it. Uh, I can see some of his point of view for sure. Although at the same time he acts like he's been run through the mill, by 1977 he was incredibly wealthy by you know from the work that he'd done, uh, and you know even selling original artwork and things like that. So the, we're going to talk much more about Robert Crumb uh, in the next episode. I just wanted to leave it here. Uh, and most recently he sued Amazon.com in 2005 for using keep on trucking. So he's still he's watching, still folks. Don't. <laughs> Don't use that image unless you get the express written consent of Robert Crumb or his uh, family. <laughs> now, uh, a little earlier when we were talking about Dennis Kitchen, we mentioned something called Comics Book, C-O-M-I-X. Uh, in 1973, Kitchen was approached by Stan Lee to uh, create an underground-style production for Marvel Comics. Uh, the series would feature more socially relevant work, however, without the, you know, the explicit content many of the underground works were known for these days. Yeah, S. S. Clay Wilson had to tone it down for this, I think. Quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it, it featured work from S. Clay Wilson, uh, Kim Deitch, uh, Trina Robbins, Art Spiegelman, and, and several others. Now, fearing a pushback from fans and distributors, Marvel Comics, the name and logo would not appear anywhere on this book. Instead, it would be released by Magazine Management Incorporated, uh, mag- or Magazine Management Company. This was a shell company founded by Martin Goodman in 1947 and owned by Marvel Comics, though originally it was kind of the other way around where Magazine Management owned Marvel. Yeah, hence the name uh, kind of makes more yes. sense that way, but anyway. <laughs> now, the first issue released with a cover date of October 1974 and would feature, in addition to comics, editorials and interviews. The project would only last three issues. However... Dennis Kitchen had already put together issues four and five. He was a 
he was a pretty uh, diligent workhorse. Uh, it took him over a year to negotiate with Marvel in order to persuade them to allow him to publish those final two issues of comic book through his own kitchen sink press. They would finally appear in 1976. Uh, just recently, a uh, hardcover collection, the best of comics book, when Marvel went underground, uh, that was published in 19, I'm sorry, in 2013, via kitchen sp- the, the kitchen sink imprint of Dark Horse Comics. I believe it was the first kitchen sink production that came out through Dark Horse. Yeah, they've, they've done a handful by now, but I think this was the first thing. Yeah, and the uh, collection would win uh, two Harvey Awards, uh, the best domestic reprint and excellence in production awards. And from the Stanley introduction in regards to the original project, he says it was totally original and unique and one of the most courageous things he's ever done. Well, that's nice for you to feel so nicely about yourself, Mr. Lee. That's uh, You did quite a job there. Good job. Um, you know, this is funny. You know, comics book is sort of what we've been talking about doing this underground comics for a while, uh, but sort of kicked it off because I found this collection at a local comic shop, and I'd never heard of this comic in my life. Yeah. And, and you know, Chris and I, we know a lot about comics. We know about Marvel comics. I'd, I've known a lot about underground comics, but it just goes to show you can never know everything, and it, and it also goes to show. There's certainly things that we've left out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no matter how complete we try to be, we can never be as complete, uh, fully complete, because there's always more to learn, and uh, we hope that you, you will share it with us. But anyway, you know, we've been talking about underground comics. They peaked from 1970 to 74, but then something happened. Uh, there was a wane in, in comics, so much so that Dennis Kitchen was called over to do, you know, comics for Marvel, uh, the comics book, and... Uh, Art Spiegelman and Bill Griffith set up that arcade comic to kind of as a cushion. So what happened? Um, Well, it turns out that there was a court case. Miller versus California, 1971. This was pornography proprietor Marvin Miller would sell pornographic books and films via mail order. One of his brochures, one featuring fairly graphic imagery of sexual scenes, which would be featured in his wares, somehow wound up at a Newport Beach restaurant, and the owners were not terribly appreciative, and as such, they called the police. Imagine that. Yeah, this is like, (laughs) we saw a booby! Anyway, uh, this woke the sleeping giant, and as luck would have it, Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger was already looking for a way to ban questionable materials, and so devised a much looser definition of criminal obscenity, leading to the 1973 United States Supreme Court's new definition of obscenity, the community standard doctrine, basically making it so the local communities would have to define it themselves. Not too nebulous, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, it depends if everyone in the neighborhood feels like seeing pubic hair or not, I guess. Sure. Um, Now, these head shops, they were already dealing in questionable paraphernalia, okay? They they were more than just a place to buy your Zap comics and your, uh, you know, (laughs) they had other things they were trying to sell, and they didn't really want to have the risk of the authorities doing a random pop-in to check for their uh, underground comics. So almost all at once, they just stopped ordering them. Underground comics bottomed out almost overnight. Uh, it wasn't worth it for them, and it's understandable from a business standpoint that, uh, you know, why would you bother selling a even a 25-cent comic when you got, you know, things that are making you more profit is taking up the same space. Sort of a story we'll hear many times in the history of comics in different forms. So uh, Orange County store owner Gordon Wilson had been arrested for carrying underground comics. The Supreme Court has fixed, he said, the Supreme Court has fixed it now that any cop with a gripe can crack down on us and burden us with legal fees and loss of work. 
Now this, along with a steep rise in paper costs, caused something of a collapse in the underground comics industry, something that Dennis Kitchen both laments and celebrates. Uh, he felt there was a glut of wannabe underground comics on the shelves, and they were all competing for space. The head shops, not being comics experts, they didn't know or care what constituted a good underground comic as opposed to a horrible one. And, uh, you know, from the list, the partial list we described, there definitely were a lot of the freaking things out there, oh, you yeah. know, all jockeying for position. And, uh, you know, for the handful of creators that we mentioned, you probably could mention another dozen that were truly good and then a lot that weren't that great, you know. A lot of also rans, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of people that were, uh, you know, maybe their heart was uh, in the right place, but the technical ability was not there at all. So he has a good point here, but it's, it's, you know, something that looks like it's about to be wiped away completely. Like, you know, why are you going to bother if you can't, you know, if you can't distribute? If yeah. you can't distribute, don't even, don't even knock yourself out. Who cares? However. You can't keep a good comic book down. If there's anything that this show has taught you, <laughs> it's that comics never die, they multiply. So yes. uh, in the next episode, we are going to talk about how, tra- how underground comics transformed. And in a sense, underground comics went away or all comics became underground comics. And I'm going to explain yep. what we mean by that in the next episode. But if you want to try to get a sneak peek, I'm not going to tell you, but you can write to us at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And of course, you can always read our stuff. Uh, we got reviews every week, and I usually have a couple of articles at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And I tell you every time, you got to go check out Chris's personal blog. That's Chris is on InfiniteEarth.blogspot.com. He does a DC Comics review every day of the week. Uh, he's just under a hundred away from doing a full year's worth, and I think after that he gets. Uh, Six-hour break, right? Something like that? <laughs> I think that was the uh, deal uh, on the contract. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, yeah, you got to check it out. Really well-written, really funny stuff. He has pictures Thanks. of the ads. Uh, well worth reading. But until next time, I uh, want you to keep it weird psychedelically. See ya. If you're going to San Francisco Oh,